To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and thanks forever and ever. Amen. This morning we meditate on God's Word, recorded in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. I'd like to reread these two verses. <clears throat> then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the word of our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. February 18, 1546, Martin Luther died at the age of 62. Four days later, his body arrived at the Castle Church in Wittenberg. People had gathered at this time to celebrate not only his life, but to give thanks to God for what was accomplished through Martin Luther. It was his funeral service there at the Castle Church. Coincidentally, 30 years earlier, about 30 years earlier, on October 31st, 1517, 498 years ago last night, Luther nailed 95 theses to that church wall in Wittenberg, to that church door, denouncing the use and the abuse, you could say, of indulgences. If you're not familiar with what an indulgence is, it was a piece of paper being sold by the church that would remit to the buyer the forgiveness of sin. Obviously, Luther had a problem with that, and so he posted these declamations against that practice. Now, at Luther's funeral service on February 18, 1546, you had a couple guys, counterparts, co-workers of Luther. One was Philip Melanchthon, who was responsible for writing portions of the Book of Concord, one of our sets of confessions, things that we believe and hold true as representations of the truth of God's Word. Philip Melanchthon, but then there was also a man named John Bugenhagen. Be thankful that that's not my last name. <laughs> but John Bugenhagen was the preacher for the service. And in that service, he used this text. He referred to this particular lesson from Revelation 14, verses 6 through 6 and 7. Pastor Buchenhagen concluded in this sermon that the angel mentioned in Revelation 14 was, in fact, Martin Luther. He said, the angel had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. That's the words of Revelation 14. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. What do you think? Do you think Luther was the fulfillment of that prophecy? Well, this morning, we're going to think about that question. Who is this angel with the eternal gospel? To give a little bit of background might be helpful for this. When you look at the book of Revelation to understand what John's vision really was talking about here. Chapter 14 of Revelation 
comes after this image of a dragon in these beasts that are starting their attack against those who worship Christ. The following chapters in Revelation, after chapter 14, they depict the images of the seven plagues and the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out against all of those who oppose God's people. In this chapter, though, here in chapter 14, God is offering comfort and strength to his children, to all of you who trust in the Lamb. This is for you, he's, he's writing. In his vision, John sees the Lamb, which, who you know as Jesus Christ, the Lamb who's sitting on the throne, and around this throne are gathered the 144,000. People have misinterpreted that number, the 144,000, as though it referred to a specific number of individuals. But rather, the 144,000 is a representation of all of the believers of all time and all places who gather around the Lamb at the throne to offer their worship and praise to Him there at that last day. And they're singing a new song. It's not a song of sorrow or despair, but rather it's a song of redemption and praise to the one who gave his life as the ransom for all people. Now this part of John's vision then, is chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, concludes with the harvest at the end of the world, where these angels come and they gather the believers for salvation. But there's also a gathering of unbelievers for eternal destruction by fire. It's what happens in the middle of chapter 14, though, that we're looking at this morning, verses 6 and 7. In those middle verses, John's vision takes us back before Judgment Day, before all the singing and all the celebration around the throne of the Lamb. He takes us back in time to those end times. It's the times that we're living in right now. At that time, John sees three angels who come with messages for all people, for believers and for unbelievers. The second angel, we'll come back to the first in just a moment here, but the second angel announces that there will be this downfall of Babylon. That is the judgment against those who persecute God's people. If you recall in the Old Testament, Babylon was that place of exile for the people of Israel. And now, in the New Testament, it is a symbol of those who oppress and hold in captivity God's people. The third angel talks about the result of that judgment against those who oppress God's people. He talks about the cup of wrath that is poured out as eternal judgment on all who worship the beast. To make matters as simple as possible here, without going into too much detail, those who worship the beast are those who believe that they can somehow save themselves without Christ. That really was the message of the beast. You don't need Jesus. But that first angel, especially we're going to focus on that here this morning, and what he says. John sees this first angel flying in mid-air, out of the reach of the dragon and his allies. The dragon, of course, is Satan, and his allies are those who oppose the gospel. These enemies cannot reach out, they cannot stop, they cannot keep him from calling out in a loud voice. 
so that all the inhabitants of the earth, of every language and nation and tribe and people, can hear and listen to what the angel has to say. He says this, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. He was described as the angel with the eternal gospel. He said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Maybe that doesn't sound so much like the gospel. It sounds a little bit ominous. The hour of judgment has come. But if you recall, in order to be able to preach the gospel, for people to appreciate the fact that they have a Savior, they must also understand their need for a Savior. Does anybody remember what that teaching is called? It's not the Gospel. It's the Law. Right? Martin Luther divided the Scriptures into those two main teachings, the Law and the Gospel. John sees this angel proclaiming this call to repentance. He proclaims the Law, not to scare people into despair, but rather so that they would Focus on this and have this awe and respect for God's message to all people. To get them to listen and take to heart what he says about sin and grace, about life and death, about imminent judgment and deliverance. The angel then says, Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. He's saying, Recognize your Creator. The one who made you. He alone is worthy to be worshipped. He alone is powerful and wise enough to make all things, to make you. And when his creation turned on him, God devised a plan to turn us back to him. God saw the depth of our sin and our helplessness. And so out of the depth of his infinite mercy, he chose to send his one and only Son to save us. Jesus did just that with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Just as that angel proclaims God is your creator, he also proclaims God is your redeemer. And therefore, worship him. In his funeral sermon, John Guggenhagen said, this angel who says, fear God and give him, glory, give him honor, was Dr. Martin Luther. Now, granted, this is Pastor Wugenhagen's understanding of the scriptures. And what is written here, fear God and give him the honor, are the two parts of Dr. Martin Luther's doctrine, the law and the gospel, through which all of scripture is unlocked, and Christ, our righteousness and eternal life, is recognized. Granted, maybe Pastor Hugenhagen was a little biased, having worked with Dr. Martin Luther, and having been able to see all the amazing things that he was capable of doing. But looking out at the big scheme, grand scheme of things, we would have to agree with John Hugenhagen that Martin Luther was a fulfillment of that prophecy of an angel who would come with the eternal gospel. The gospel was for all people. Perhaps Reformation Sunday just sounds like another excuse for Lutherans to pat ourselves on the back or to glorify an individual 
like Martin Luther, today though, fellow believers, fellow Lutherans, fellow Christians. We recognize an individual by the name of Martin Luther who himself declared himself to be a frail beggar, a sinner. And yet he was also one whom God raised up with faith and courage to be his messenger, his angel, if you will, proclaiming the eternal gospel. And it is for that, for God's grace and his mercy, that we glorify and give him thanks today. Reformation Sunday is also an opportunity to reflect on the Christian church's history. More precisely, we reflect on how God defended and preserved his truth despite all of the pressure and opposition from people. Despite the fact that God was using mortal messengers to proclaim an eternal gospel. As obvious as it sounds, the eternal gospel did not die with Martin Luther. It's not buried at the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg. By the grace of God alone, the gospel remains alive and active. Even against enemies that have wished the gospel were dead and buried, and who have tried everything in their power to make it so, the gospel lives on. No dragon, no beast, no antichrist can undo or destroy the gospel promises that endure forever. Those promises are yours. They remain yours. Even when a mortal messenger dies. We look at John's vision once more, and what he sees is the angel flying in midair with the eternal gospel to proclaim and that vision points to the gospel, reaching to every nation and language and tribe and people. One of Luther's greatest achievements was translating the Bible into a language that his fellow Germans would be able to understand. And that work of translating the Bible also provided the basis for many others to translate the Bible into other languages that have reached other people and nations and tribes and the point is, the gospel is eternal. It lives on. What about that angel messenger? We already recognize that Luther, even though he was a fulfillment of this prophecy, he's no longer. He's gone. But my question is, does the angel live on? Again, John sees this angel flying in mid-air. And the message that he carries is for people of all times and all places. Fear God and give him glory. John, nowhere in this vision, records or sees that the angel just sits down and calls it quits. The angel is carrying an eternal message. But his work, his function... His mission that's also going on until the end of time. And when John sees his, in his vision, what, what he sees in his vision is also what he heard from Jesus in person. Jesus commissioned his disciples to do this ongoing angel work when he told them, 
you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are you identifying who these angels are? If Jesus says that to his disciples, who, yes, also served in that function, today you get to call yourself an angel, too. You are those messengers. Jesus says to you, you will be my witness. You will be my angel messenger with this eternal gospel. And he also promises to you, I will be with you. When Luther stood before the governors and emperors and popes, he did that for the sake of the gospel, knowing that Jesus was with him. When John, the Apostle John, or Peter, or Paul, stood before the Caesars or these other rulers, knowing that their lives were at stake, they did it for the gospel. When Christians have stood up to mockery, threats, and injustices, very often, they've done that for the sake of the gospel. Knowing that something greater than their own lives was at stake. And with Paul, believers can say, I consider everything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It's worth it. It really is. Would you say the same? Would you risk your reputation with your family and your friends? Would you risk your money? 